Let me tell you about a minister. But unlike our mystery evangelist from two weeks ago, this minister is actually a real person. Though he was certainly ordained as a pastor, he was better known for his athletic ability, his skill on the field. You might know him as the minister of the defense. Do you know who I'm talking about? Reggie White, one of the most famous Packers to play the game. Played for the Packers in six seasons in the late 90s, retired in 2000 with some accolades that are virtually unmatched. He was a 13-time All-Pro, a 13-time Pro Bowler, a two-time Defensive Player of the Year. He won uh, MVP of, no, he won Defensive Player of the Year in 1998 and set the single-game sack record for the Super Bowl the same year, helping the Packers bring the Lombardi Trophy back to Green Bay. Many would argue that Green Bay has not seen a player like Reggie White since he retired in the year 2000. Many would also argue that Green Bay hasn't seen a man like Reggie White since he retired in 2000. Many don't realize that he got involved in Fellowship of Christian Athletes when he was a freshman in college at the University of Tennessee. By the time he graduated, he was ordained as a Baptist pastor. And while he was serving, uh, while he was playing full-time playing football, he was also serving as an associate minister at his church uh, in Kentucky or Tennessee. I can't remember which. But he had this tangible love for Jesus, yet he didn't compromise the truth. He had this love for Jesus. He had this love for people that just attracted people to him. I mean, he's just a, a great guy on and off the field. And he put literally his money where his mouth was that when a, a string of arsonists burned down African-American churches in the South in the late 90s, he wrote checks out of his personal bank account to rebuild these churches, including the one that he served at as a pastor. So when he retired from football in 2000, he was looking ahead to a career of full-time ministry. And the future was bright for Reggie White until the day after Christmas in 2004 when he was rushed to the hospital. He didn't make it. He died of heart complications. If there's anybody that deserved a long, happy fruitful retirement from the NFL. It was Reggie White. I mean, think about all the people he could have impacted. Think of the souls that could have been saved. Think of the lives that he could have changed. Think of the philanthropy. Think of the books he could have written. I mean, there are so many things that he could have done he didn't do. When I think of a man like Reggie White and how his story finished, it, it might cause us to feel three words that we feel maybe all the time. Life's not fair. And certainly, that's not the only scenario that would cause you and I to think the same thing. You're driving down Interstate 39, going 72, and this crazy driver just whips past you going 95, and he doesn't get pulled over, but 10 minutes later, you get pulled over for going 72. Does that argument work very well with the police officer? <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's not fair. Or how about this? You've been dealing with anxiety for years, and you've tried everything. You've talked to your Physician, you've gone to see a psychologist, you've worked with a psychiatrist to get on some medications, and nothing works. Yet, you have friends who are self-medicating for the same symptom with some less than ethical measures. And they're doing fine. You're trying to follow God's way, but it doesn't seem to be working. It's not fair. 
or you're just about to graduate from nursing school, you graduate, you take your NCLEX, and you have classmates who cheated their way through nursing school. And what happens? They pass their NCLEX on their first pass, and you're on take number three, and are still waiting to pass. It's not fair. We could go over scenario after scenario in our life when we might feel that feeling of life not being fair. Pain and brokenness and suffering and evil are realities in our world. And we have a choice. We can dig our head in the sand and we could pretend like evil doesn't exist, which is impossible because evil doesn't just exist out there. It exists in here. So we can dig our head in the sand or we can confront the problem of pain with the lens of a Christian worldview. And that's exactly what Solomon does in our text tonight. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. That's where we're going to be tonight. I'll be reading out of the ESV. But in our text tonight, Solomon does not hold back. He doesn't try to sugarcoat life. This is a a raw and a real passage that speaks about the pain of our human existence. Our passage outlines five ways that, that life isn't fair, five ways that we're confronted with the injustice of life, and then Solomon offers two conclusions. So we're going to start kind of depressed, but then we're going to end with some hope, so don't check out on me. But I'm just going to take this verse by verse. I'll start in verse 10 of Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they'd done such things. This also is vanity. This also is hevel, is what Solomon says. You understand the scenario, don't you? Solomon paints the picture of a a funeral service. Not of a good person, but what Solomon calls a wicked person. Somebody who worshiped in the temple, somebody who, who put on a great religious show one day a week, but then the rest of the week was doing anything but living a righteous uh, life, living a, a life of wickedness the rest of the week. But here's the catch. At the funeral, you should have heard the eulogies. They made it sound like this man or this woman was the best person on the planet. But Solomon knew better. <laughs> Maybe you've been in a similar place. Maybe you've been to a funeral service or memorial service where you know that the deceased was anything but a good person. But then you hear the eulogies and they won't stop praising the individual. How do we feel? Is it okay for us to feel frustrated? The person has passed. It doesn't feel fair. I think of a man named Al Capone. You've probably heard of him, one of the most famous gangsters in American history. He was imprisoned at Alcatraz in 1931. He spent eight years in prison and then was released and lived the last year, eight years of his life in relative peace. He died at the age of 48. But listen to part of his obituary. Al was 48. Death had beckoned him for years, but big Al had not been born to pass out on a sidewalk or corner slab. He died like a rich Neapolitan in bed in a quiet room with his family sobbing near him and a soft wind murmuring in the trees outside. Al Capone is one of those guys that we probably would agree did not deserve a peaceful, quiet, loving departure from this world. He was not a good man. And if we pause to think about it, we could talk probably for three days, identifying story after story of athletes, of pop stars, of famous politicians, of movie icons who are are simply just jerks. 
yet they get all the glory. That's our first way that life isn't fair. The wicked get the glory. The wicked get the glory. It's possible that the hypocrisy of the wicked might even hit a little bit closer to home. Somebody who attends church on Sunday with one, maybe even two hands in the air, but then dropping F-bombs at work or living a life of immorality. Somebody who's praising God on Sunday mornings, but neglecting their family. Someone who's worshiping God with their mouth, but then is nonstop gossiping in their friend group. Someone who's inflicted remarkable pain in your life. Someone who might pretend to be a good Christian, yet you know better and you've dealt with the consequence of that emotional pain. Life's not fair because the wicked get the glory. Look at verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. What's unfair about our world? Justice is delayed. Justice is rarely immediate. And unfortunately, the delay in human justice was on full display in our country over the last two years. One of the consequences, one of the effects of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic was that the court systems got backed up tremendously backed up. The following account, if it doesn't infuriate you, it probably should. You might remember last November of Christmas parade in Waukesha, where Daryl Brooks took his SUV, drove through the crowd, injuring 50 and killing six. It was a horrendous, unspeakable evil But what you might not realize is what happened in the months leading up to the attack. Earlier in 2021, he was set to go to trial for allegedly firing a weapon at his nephew. The defense was prepared. The prosecution was prepared. They were ready to go. But because of the delay in the justice system, they could not get space in a courtroom. So they set his bail at $500, which he posted and then he was back on the streets. Not too long after that, he took his car and tried to run over the mother of his child. Is once again arrested. This time a junior prosecutor who was overwhelmed at the amount of cases in the system made a mistake and set his bail at $1,000, which he once again posted. That was November 19th. Two days later, was the attack at the parade. That doesn't infuriate you. I'm not sure anything will. A picture of the delay, the shortcomings of our human justice system. That's the second reason that life isn't fair. Justice is delayed. Justice is delayed. Reminds me of Psalm 13, where the psalmist writes this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? (laughs) Do you ever feel like the psalmist? Do you ever feel like God is just standing there? Do you ever feel like he's just watching? Have you ever waited for God to intervene? Saying, God, why don't you do something? Why does it feel like you're not showing up, God, where are you? Why aren't you bringing justice to Russia? Why aren't you stopping them? 
Why does it seem like you're standing by or maybe closer to home? Lord, how long are you gonna allow my parents to keep treating me like this? How long are you gonna allow my boss to keep treating me like this with no accountability? How long are the evil people in our neighborhood gonna continue to flourish without any accountability? Those are things that we all have probably thought and maybe prayed. But here's a hard truth, but it's a truth that each of us must understand. God's justice is delayed. In our humanness, in our finiteness, it's tempting to get frustrated, wishing that God would intervene now, wishing that he would bring justice today. And when he doesn't, it feels like life isn't fair. If justice were immediate, then maybe that would discourage sin. Maybe it'd discourage crime. But instead, because justice is delayed, then we get an even deeper glimpse into the human heart. So what Solomon says in the second half of verse 11 says this, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. It's a doctrine that we call total depravity. That's our third reason that life isn't fair. People are naturally evil. People are naturally evil. Talk to someone in law enforcement who has a far less rosy view of the world and of humanity, who's experienced the total depravity of man on a daily basis. Talk to a district attorney who prosecutes case after case of horrendous crimes. Or if you want to see the depravity of the human heart, just look in the mirror. But we don't have to go any farther than here to understand evil of the human heart. Because my heart and your heart is naturally inclined towards sin. When I look at the rear rear mirror of my life, I'm amazed, quite frankly, I'm ashamed of the things that I've said, of the things that I've done that nobody ever had to teach me. My guess is it's true in your life as well. Things I never learned or observed, things that I just did because of the evil that was here. And what's even scarier is that in the moment, I had no problem with the sin that I was committing. Didn't even convict me. Sometimes we like to pretend like we have our act together. Sometimes we like to look like we're perfect Christians. But if I had to guess, there are things in our past that we'd rather just forget about. There are sins that you and I have committed that if we were forced to share in small group tonight, it'd be humiliating. There are things we'd rather just forget about. We have to understand that without Christ, our hearts are naturally inclined toward evil. But isn't that what we see in scripture? Think of Romans 3, 10 through 12, as as Paul quotes the prophets, no one is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together, they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Doesn't get much clearer than that. The human heart is naturally inclined toward evil. We are born evil. We are born enemies of God. Without the work of God in our heart, without his calling on our life, without him working in us, bringing about repentance and faith, then we have no hope. The heart is naturally inclined toward evil without the capacity to choose God. Quite frankly, this is one of the paramount differences between looking at life through a Christian worldview and looking at life through a secular worldview. So our society today, our culture today, says that your heart, the human heart, is good. 
your desires are good. If you grew up watching Disney, the, the sermon that Disney preached to all of us was, follow your heart and your heart will never lead you astray. <laughs> That's not what Jeremiah 17, 9 says, where the prophet writes, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Polar opposite than Disney. Scripture teaches us not to follow your heart. There's gonna be times when you desire to do something. There's gonna be times where your heart tells you to do something that are in polar opposite to God's word. And we have to decide, are we gonna follow God's truth or are we gonna follow my heart? And the world says, just follow your heart. Just do what you want. That's truth. No, God says, don't follow your heart, follow his word. That's what it means to live through a Christian worldview. But the Bible teaches that Without Holy Spirit intervention, our hearts are inclined, are directed towards evil, towards selfishness. Now, don't hear me wrong. I believe that all people have the capacity to do good and the capacity to do evil. I know some non-Christians that are very nice, very kind people. I'm not suggesting that everything that someone who doesn't believe in Jesus does is evil. Instead, the inclination, the direction of the human heart without the Holy Spirit is toward evil, is toward selfishness. It's another reason why life's not fair. Look at verse 14 in our text. I'll come back to 12 and 13 for my type A friends. There's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. And I said, this also is vanity. It's hevel. This verse uncovers two parallel observations that are our next two principles tonight. First, the wicked live long and prosper. And then second, the righteous suffer. The wicked live long and prosper is number four. And then the righteous suffer is number five. They're two separate points, but they're certainly connected. Solomon's saying that the wicked get what the righteous people deserve and righteous people are getting what the wicked deserve. There's this reversal that just doesn't seem to make sense. And it doesn't take too much thought for us to come up with some scenarios where we see this come true in our lives. Maybe you're working hard in your college courses. You're coming close to the end of the semester, though classes are brutal. And there's these take-home exams. And you've decided to hold fast to the integrity covenant that you signed and you're not cheating on your exams, though you know that everyone else in the class is cheating. And you study hard, you get a B minus as the, as the class finishes and everybody else gets A's and they get praised by the professor. It's not fair. Or how about this? A dishonest investor cheats hardworking people out of their own money while the same hardworking people lose their homes or their jobs. Or how about terms of your sexuality? You've committed before the Lord to live a pure life to save yourself for marriage and you've succeeded, but you're single as a dollar bill. That was my dad joke of the day, no one laughed. I'm gonna take that joke and put it right back in my wallet. So <laughs> that one was worse. Okay, let's rewind. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, poor, poor Matthias is right. No, poor Hannah is really, feel bad for her. She's a saint. So 
you're, you're single. But then there's this friend that you went to college with, and he or she has been anything but pure. They've lived a completely immoral life, yet you go on Instagram, and they've got the perfect happy marriage that you've always wanted. It's not fair. Or how about this? Maybe you're same-sex attracted, and you've been pursuing holiness. You've been pursuing the Lord and denying those desires, and it's been a challenge, but, but, but you've been pursuing Jesus. And then, then you go on Facebook. There's this friend from college who's posting pictures of their new gay or lesbian relationship. There's something in your heart that just longs, that desires that, yet you can't have it. It's not fair. Or maybe you've been walking the painful but real path of infertility and have longed for kids. You and your spouse have desired deeply to be parents, this good God-given desire. But for some reason, God said, then it's not gonna happen, at least not now. But then there's this other couple that you're friends with. They're not even married and they're not even parent material. And they don't want to be pregnant. And then you find out that they're expecting. Like, God, how does that make sense? Or how about the pastor in the Middle East who's thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, yet the guys who toss him in jail are still running freely on the streets? Are you frustrated yet? Because you should be. Life's not fair. It's not. And those three words are built on the foundation of what we might call the problem of evil or the problem of pain. And if I had to guess, you've probably had conversations with someone whose main objection to believing in Jesus, of being a Christian, was the problem of evil. They look out at the world or they look out at our life and see the pain, the brokenness. Say, I, I can't believe that there's a good loving God because of all the evil in the world. Or maybe you're here tonight and that's your objection from crossing the line, believing in Jesus. How can I believe in God when there's this much evil? That's a real question. I think it's important for us to dialogue a little bit about tonight. So we're gonna enter in for the next five minutes into philosophy 101 and talk about the problem of evil. But to understand the problem of evil, we have to understand Epicurus's trilemma, which has been around for hundreds of years. Daniel, if you could put that up on the screen. So trilemma works that if the first two statements are true, then the third must be true. So I'll read it out loud. If God is unable to prevent evil, then he's not all powerful. Um, Number two, (laughs) if God is not willing to prevent evil, then he's not all good. And then number three, if God is both willing and able to prevent evil, then why does evil exist? Here's what we believe about God that God is both all-loving and all-powerful. But here's what this trilemma is saying, that, well, it certainly seems like if God was all-powerful and all-loving, he'd prevent evil. So then does that mean that maybe God is all-loving, but he's not all-powerful, so he can't prevent evil in the world? Or is it the opposite? Is God God all-powerful, but he's not all-loving? He's kind of like this evil tyrant who's ruling over the world. Maybe one of those two things has to be true, but this... That can't be true. How do we respond? Well, the trilemma is actually built on an assumption, assuming that God 
does not or could not have a good reason to allow evil within his creation. It's a false assumption. So how Christian philosophers have responded is they've created various theodicies. Theodicy is a word that just means uh, a just defense of, of God. It's literally what it means. But a theodicy is a possible reason why God could allow evil within his creation. And there's many different theodicies. I just want to outline three, maybe four, depends how you count. That might help us in understanding why God has allowed evil to exist in the world. Here's the first, the free will defense. Evil exists because God has given mankind the freedom to choose, to make decisions, and with that freedom comes the opportunity, the choice to do good or to do evil. That evil is simply the result of human free will. So that's one possible theodicy. Here's another. It's called the greater good defense. The greater good defense, if you're taking notes. goes like this. God uses evil to accomplish a good, a greater good, than whatever could have been accomplished without the presence of evil. Maybe a scenario will help with the greater good defense. Imagine this, a man, 50 years old, tragically passes away from cancer. But he was a faithful follower of Christ who, who lived life on mission and, and at his funeral, the pastor who did a ceremony or did the funeral declared and proclaimed and shared the gospel and 10 people at his funeral decided to believe in Jesus. Amazing. Now, is cancer evil? Yes, cancer is evil. But God, in that scenario, used the evil to accomplish a great good. Have we ever realized how incredible that is? That God can take even the worst of situations, the worst scenarios, and use it for good? It's what we see in Romans chapter 8. Here's another. Evil is God's megaphone. It's one proposed by C.S. Lewis. You've probably, probably experienced this in your own life. I certainly have in mind. God uses the trials to get our attention, to direct our gaze, to direct our focus to him. I found that I've grown more in my life in the valley than on the mountaintop. I love the camp high. I love our camp out. I love our mission trip. I love those moments, but God's grown me more in the valley of miscarriage, walking through the pain of a wayward sibling, having a father-in-law on the brink of death through sin struggles, through theological questions, through doubts. God's grown me through those things even more than the top of the mountain. It's what we see in scripture. We see the benefits of trials all throughout the New Testament. First Peter 1, James chapter 1, God uses the tough stuff to get our attention and to draw us to him. <laughs> now, are any of those theodicies satisfying? Probably not entirely. But that's part of the reality of living in a broken and sinful and fallen world. But maybe our last argument before we step out of philosophy class, just think about morality for a moment. The problem of evil is not a unique problem to Christianity. 
every religious system in our world has to answer the same question because we all live in the same world and the world's evil. So Christianity, Buddhism, Mormonism, Islam, every religion has to say, how can there be evil in the world and uh, corresponding to our, our deity? How can those two things fit together? The problem is not unique to Christianity. But let me ask an even more foundational question. How do you know that cancer is wrong? How do you know that's what ha- what's happening in, in Ukraine is wrong and evil? How do you know that murder is wrong? You ever thought about that before? No one had to teach us and tell us that those things were wrong because God's law is written on our heart. But think about the consequence of a secular worldview. Think about the logical conclusion of secularism, that if you're the product of regressive genetic mutations over millions and billions of years, that if we're just here by random chance and that God doesn't exist, then there is no morality. It's survival of the fittest. Why not just go murder someone because you don't like them and you're stronger than them? Why? Because that's ridiculous and none of us would subscribe to that because God's law is written on our heart. Just the presence of the problem of evil does more to prove and demonstrate God's existence than it does to disprove it. Because God's law is written on our hearts. We're created in his image and we know that the evil and the brokenness and the sin and the pain that exists in our world today is not the way that our world was meant to be which is why I'm thankful that Solomon doesn't just leave us hanging in our text. He doesn't leave us in this pit of despair, but he gives us two reminders, two things that give us at least a little bit of hope. Let me read verses 12 and 13. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. Solomon reminds us to fear God. And if you were at church with us yesterday, heard a great message from Pastor Jeff, one of the distinctions of a healthy church was a reverential awe of God. That's exactly what Solomon's talking about. We often use the word fear in a negative context, but that's not necessarily how scripture uses the word fear. It's awe, it's reverence, it's a respect for the greatness, for the power, for the majesty of our creator. We have to fear God because justice is in his hands. Fear God because justice is eternal. Putin might get away with genocide today, but he will receive God's just judgment in eternity, and that is not going to be pretty. Your boss might get away with being a jerk today, but he won't forever. People trying to tear apart our our part, our country, our churches, our families, they're not gonna walk freely on the streets forever. Justice isn't earthly, justice is eternal. And sometimes we wish that justice was enacted today, that justice was immediate, that God would bring down fire on our enemies and destroy all evil and all evil people in the world today. Maybe you've desired that before. But my guess is that's not really what you desire. What would happen if God's justice wasn't delayed? What would happen if God's justice was unilaterally immediate? Where would we be right now? 
we would be burning in hell. If God's justice was immediate, none of us would have had a chance to repent. What some of us might call a delay in justice, God calls something else. Think of 2 Peter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What we might call a delay in justice, God calls something else, patience. And if you know Christ today, if you have a relationship with him, if you've turned away from your sin and trusted him as your savior, then have you ever considered how patient God's been toward you and how patient he's been toward me? The years of running away from him, the years of rebellion, the years of, of living as his enemy and running in the opposite direction that God didn't give, it up, give up on you, his patience didn't run out, that he gave you a chance to turn and to believe in him. You have, have you ever considered how patient God's been toward you? Well, then how selfish would it be to receive the patience and then deny it for somebody else? God's patience is, one, a reminder that we should never give up on someone. As long as they have breath to keep praying for them, to keep sharing the love of Christ with them. But we have to understand that the window of God's patience is not gonna last forever. And there's some of you here tonight that have maybe been taking advantage of his patience and are thinking, you know, I'm not my fun today. I'm in a ask for his forgiveness later. I'm gonna believe in Jesus later after I'm out of my 20s. It's a dangerous thing to gamble with the Lord's patience. Repent today before it's too late. That's our first conclusion. Our second comes from verse 15. And get back to Ecclesiastes. He says this, I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. <laughs> Solomon has thrown us curveball after curveball in this book. And here's another one. This is not how I would naturally respond to the problem of evil, but I actually think it's ingenious. Because Solomon acknowledges that there's pain in the world. He acknowledges that there's brokenness in the world. He acknowledges that life's not fair. He basically says, Life's not fair. Stop expecting it to be. But then in the next breath, he says, don't let the injustice of life in a broken world stop you from enjoying the good gifts that God's given you today. Yes, there's brokenness out there. Yes, there's pain. Yes, there's evil. Yes, there's frustration. But don't let the headlines keep you from enjoying the life God's given you. Don't let the toxic work environment ruin your weekend. Don't let your broken family keep you out of church. One of the best ways that we can confront or work through the problem of evil in our life is simply to enjoy the life that God's given to us. That's our final, con final conclusion tonight. Simply live your life and enjoy the gifts that God has given to you and thank him for them. What a gift that in the midst of a world that's filled with brokenness, filled with pain, filled with frustration, that God still gives us good gifts and gives us the gift to enjoy those good gifts, all the while remembering that our lives here are just temporary. 
We weren't created for this world. We're created for the next and the pain and the evil and the suffering and the death and the brokenness that exists today reminds us that we're just living in a tent, that we're created for something better. We're created for eternity. So every time we're confronted with the problem of evil in our life, it reminds us to look forward to the day when we'll be with Jesus forever and there won't be any pain anymore. Let me pray. Father, there's plenty of days where I would rather just dig my head in the sand and ignore the evil in our world. But give us the courage, the fortitude, the perseverance to confront not just the evil out there, but the evil in our hearts as well. That we won't be numb to the sin that might still exist in our life, that we might be quick to confess and repent. Father, if there's anybody here tonight that has been testing your patience, that, that is delaying believing in Jesus because they wanna have their fun now, Father, may you work in them, convict them by the power of your spirit and draw them, call them to yourself. Allow each one of us here tonight to realize that there is nothing better than knowing Jesus and living for Jesus. And when we are confronted with the problem of evil and pain in our world, may the evil direct our gaze to you, looking forward to the day when we'll be with you forever. So when we take some time tonight to dialogue in our small groups, may you guide and direct our time. May it be helpful for us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers as well. Guide us, we ask in Jesus' name.